Welcome to the Knowledge at Wharton podcasts. Knowledge at Wharton is the online research and business analysis journal of the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit our website at knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Support for Knowledge at Wharton podcasts comes from Vanguard, offering investments designed to help individuals and institutions reach their long-term financial goals at Vanguard.com. Almost anyone who has been following the auto industry, especially in the U.S., will agree that lately it's been a very bumpy ride. For one thing, the difficulties of GM and Ford have filled the headlines for several months now. And there has been lots of speculation about how severe these problems are. To add to those difficulties, the auto part maker Delphi, which was spun off from GM in 1999, is also in the midst of bankruptcy proceedings and is engaged in active negotiations with both the United Auto Workers Union and with GM. Yet another challenge is growing global competition. Virtually all the Japanese brands are showing an increase in market share in the US. And finally, questions continue to persist about new technology, especially as it concerns the new hybrid models. Fortunately for Knowledge at Wharton readers, I mean listeners, uh, we have John Paul McDuffie, a professor of management at Wharton, in our offices today to speak with my colleague Robbie Shell and me, Mukul Pandya. Professor McDuffie, welcome. Thank you. Uh, let's start with GM and Ford. How unusual are their troubles? Uh, after all, auto company crises are not that rare. From Chrysler's near bankruptcy in 1979 to the present day, many companies have had sales slumps and severe financial difficulties. What's going on? Uh, well, the auto industry often does see quite dramatic swings in competitive fortunes. It's not unusual to see uh, headlines of crisis followed a couple of years later by headlines of you know return to profitability and strong sales. Often one or two hit products can really uh, make the difference. And Chrysler, which a couple of years ago seemed to be having uh, again, uh, risking one of its nine lives um, on, on uh, difficulty again, uh, has come back quite quite strongly. Um, but I think there are some differences in the in the current situation. Uh, right now, GM and Ford are still very heavily dependent on uh, on big SUVs and trucks, so products that are out of sync certainly with current energy prices and maybe with uh, some of consumer preferences. Competitors have SUVs and trucks also, but they maybe have a more diversified product line. Um, This has happened before that the American companies have been out of sync with consumer demand, um, but that's nothing you fix that quickly. It takes time to get new products into the marketplace. And in the meantime, um, you you may lose some consumer loyalty. I think another worrisome sign for GM and Ford is uh, that they may lose some loyalty from American consumers who've been loyal up until now. Uh, There are many competing automakers building in the U.S. that aren't seen as so foreign anymore. A lot of consumers are ready to try an import model from a Japanese, a Korean, a German maker, and then they like what they find. So then they may not have reason to come back when the product lineup matches better. Uh, finally, I'd say that GM and Ford are, are trying to to wean themselves right now from these very high rebates that have been a characteristic of the U.S. auto market. Um, they started uh, 
in order to try to boost sales uh, during the slow economy after 9-11. But rebates reached as high as four or $5,000 a vehicle, um, you know, slicing profit margins to, to a very, very thin level. Um, so to try to back away from those is, is a sensible move. It's probably long overdue. Um, but coming at a time that gas prices are so high and they don't always have the products, this means they're losing quite a lot of market share. So to give up market share in favor of profitability, again, you could argue it makes some sense. Um, but it, at a certain point, getting smaller makes everything more difficult for them in this uh, industry where economies of scale still matters. Uh, looking at Delphi's negotiations with the UAW and GM, what are the implications of this three-way dance for each of the parties and for the U.S. auto industry in general? Well, uh, Delphi's fate really is very intertwined with um, both GM and the UAW. The, the wage issues and the struggle with the union over labor costs have, have gotten the most attention, uh, but also in bankruptcy court have... have have been some days of testimony about all the contracts Delphi has with GM uh, on which they lose money, thousands and thousands. Um, so this, again, grows out of their history of being spun off from GM, feeling a need to uh, continue to supply GM even at, at these losses. Um, part of what Delphi needs from, from GM is uh, some renegotiation of those contracts, just as they need renegoti renegotiation of wage costs with the UAW. Um, so there are these three-way talks going on. Uh, GM bears some responsibility on the labor side for Delphi workers as well, uh, so they can't simply let that play out independently. Um, I've been relatively optimistic, given the, the stakes, that the parties will find some solutions, uh, but uh, things move quickly, and I've seen some headlines recently that GM is refusing to negotiate a number of the contracts. The UAW has now held strike authorization votes uh, at the Delphi factories, and uh, the pace is increasing. The bankruptcy judge is sitting waiting to hear the, 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 the case that the labor contract should be invalidated completely. Um, so, so circumstances and uh, may escape the party's uh, ability to reach a, a positive resolution. If Delphi takes a strike from the UAW, it probably shuts down GM factories almost immediately in GM's weakened state. Perhaps that uh, hastens their, uh, their, their slide towards, uh, towards bankruptcy. So it's a very precarious situation. Uh, let's turn now to the Japanese brands, uh, whose market share in the U.S. is increasing. Are we seeing a replay of the late 1970s and early 1980s uh, with high energy prices driving consumers away from the uh, big gas-guzzling American-made products towards fuel-efficient Japanese models? Uh, what's different? Uh, well, there, there are some, uh, some resemblances, and uh, it is quite striking that the U.S. industry became so dependent on products that consume large amounts of gasoline and really aren't sold anywhere else in the world except the U.S. Uh, if you frame it that way, it sounds a lot like the 70s. Um, but uh, one of the things that's different is uh, at that time, the foreign competitors offered the small fuel-efficient vehicles, but that's really all they offered. 
and so there was a large part of the market that the U.S. companies still had to themselves. And as soon as they were able to offer some small fuel-efficient vehicles, which they did partly with partnerships with, with, with Japanese firms, uh, they were able to recover quite well. Now the U.S. companies face strong competitors in virtually every, every product category. Uh, and in fact, part of what's striking is that uh, sometimes the, the winner in the horsepower races um, these days, you know, who has the biggest engine and most powerful vehicle in a category, is a company like Nissan, which has set out to distinguish themselves on that basis. Um, so everyone, in a way, has rushed to um, more, more power and, and uh, worse fuel mileage. Um, that's what consumers seem to be responding to. And I, I do have some sympathy when the automakers say, look, all we can do is make products available and, and see what sells, and, and, and that's, what we're, that's what we're stuck with. The Japanese have maintained more strength in passenger cars and more strength in the smaller, more fuel-efficient products, and that's helping them at this time. In almost every industry, the big question everyone faces is China. The South China Morning Post reported this week that China has set an annual growth rate of 40% for vehicles, parts, and components. How do you see the role of China and its effect on the global auto market? Uh, China is, is huge, and it's uh, probably the, the preoccupation most on the mind of auto executives all over the world, uh, I find. There are both the issues of the growth of the domestic China market, which is, is what you referred to, and then their possible threat as an exporter of vehicles, um, not to mention the, the thing that's been true for a while, which is they are the world's um, manufacturer of lower-cost uh, parts. So uh, the bankruptcies of U.S. suppliers are, uh, in, in many cases, I think directly attributable to the fact that the growth has been so strong out of China. If you look just at their domestic market, um, I mean, that rate of growth is really uh, staggering. And, of course, everyone wants to be part of growth like that because the developed countries are relatively uh, you know, low growth, fairly, fairly stagnant. Um, Volkswagen has been in China for a long time, and for a long time they seem to have a, a real first persistent first-mover advantage. Um, but that has changed rather rapidly in the last couple of years. Uh, also, General Motors had uh, a few years of quite strong success with a, a big Buick, which is not exactly what you'd imagine would, would sell well in China, um, but to a particular class of consumers, it sold very well. Um, uh, the price of car loans has gone up because of bank uh, raising interest rates. Uh, cost of fuel has gone up. And uh, most importantly, probably uh, competitors, particularly actually uh, Hyundai from Korea, uh, have moved in with very popular models. The Japanese are not far behind. So I think finally we're seeing a, an explosion of demand in the small car end of the market, where you would kind of expect it. It may just mean that the purchasing power of, of that very large mass of consumers is, is reaching the point that a private uh, vehicle is, is something they can contemplate. Um, so, you know, the domestic drama will keep uh, the industry busy for a while, and, and the Chinese... Uh, you know, national manufacturers will be also trying to, uh, to capture their share of that. Some of them are quite good, quite sophisticated. I think it'll probably slow up their, their attempts to sell products outside of China um, because it's important for them to grab uh, a piece of the exploding domestic demand. Um, but it won't, it won't be long before we see Chinese products for sale in the U.S.
Uh, turning now to hybrids, uh, after the first initial uh, flush of enthusiasm uh, about hybrids, first from Toyota and then from Honda, Ford and others, we are now hearing uh, a bit of about a bit of backlash, or at least skepticism. Uh, the strongest refrain seems to be that consumers who spend the extra money for a hybrid won't ever get it back in savings at the gas pump, even with higher gas prices. Uh, is this critique warranted? Well, certainly if you just look at a payback period, even with higher gas prices, uh, I, I would say uh, it's not that you'll never get it back, but it will take a number of years. And uh, many consumers faced with, you know, two, three thousand dollar higher purchase price uh, won't want to wait to get that savings back. So the real question is, how much is that the basis for people making uh, this purchase decision? Of course, the, probably the best way to lower your, your, your gas consumption is buy a smaller fuel-efficient vehicle. It doesn't have to be a hybrid. You know, switch from, from an SUV to a, to a sedan. A lot of people don't want to do that. So they want to stay with the kind of vehicle they want to get, and then they hope for some better mileage. Um, if they're not so price-sensitive, those consumers might not mind buying a hybrid, which, after all, is also um, kind of cool and trendy and... Uh, and is, uh, you know, helping the environmental impact over the long run. I saw a nice quote uh, recently, which, which is an interesting kind of analogy. Um, do people buy global positioning system navigation systems for their cars, hoping to save in the cost of paper maps? If so, you know, it, it'll, it'll take them a long time to make up for those. Uh, well, of course not. They, that's not why they're, why they're buying it. Um, and, and so... Uh, I don't. I think it's part of an education process for people about this new technology, which is uh, appropriate. And uh, the last thing I'll say is that um, uh, let me just use Toyota for an example. So their first hybrid, the Prius, obviously was marketed very heavily as a very fuel-efficient green vehicle, and already there are people out there passionately trying to push their mileage up to 60, 70 uh, with all sorts of clever driving tricks. Um, but the next product that was a hybrid uh, was a, uh, a, an SUV, a medium-sized SUV, both the Lexus and the Highlander. Um, their design of that engine is, doesn't improve gas mileage that much. Um, but what it does allow them to say is that you'll actually get better engine performance from your hybrid than you would from the, the V6 gasoline engine uh, that you would have bought otherwise. Um, better torque, a bunch of better characteristics. It's almost like getting a bigger engine. Well, they're obviously not trying to reach the green, environmentally conscious buyer with that. They're trying to make sure that nobody can say, you know, those hybrids are okay, but you can't tow your boat anymore because the engine isn't powerful enough. So I see it as a kind of strategic bid to widen the market for these drivetrains and the widening is really not going to be based exclusively on uh, arguments about saving on gas prices. Also, people don't want to have to go to the gas station that much and keep filling up. I mean, that was, that's one of the appeals for many people, not just um, that they're not going to make their money back so quickly, but that there's fear of those trips every Monday morning before you go to work to fill it up. I think that's right. Um, a de depressing experience these days. <laughs> Uh, Carlos Ghosn, the CEO of Nissan, said recently that Ford's increased incentives on hybrid vehicles prove that demand for hybrids is slipping. At the same time, Nissan still plans to release a hybrid version of the Altima this year. What's going on here? Well, uh, Carlos Ghosn has been very clear in his, his view of hybrids. He said, you know, it's, it's one of a number of technologies 
to try to uh, achieve some energy savings. In Europe, uh, there's probably more excitement about what can be done with diesel engines in terms of, of uh, fuel economy. He said Toyota gets a big advantage from being the first mover in this, but for us to invest tons of money in coming up with our own hybrid as the second, third, fourth mover in the market, we're not going to get very much benefit from it. On the other hand, we can't completely say to our customers, uh, hey, we don't have any hybrids at all. So we're going to be practical and we're going to license the technology from Toyota. We're going to offer it. Um, but, you know, strategically, he feels uh, it, it's by no means obvious that that will be the dominant intermediate technology, let's say, in the period up till fuel cells, which is still 30, 40 years off. Uh, one final question. Uh, imagine, if you will, instead of Robbie and me sitting with you at this table, that you actually have the CEOs of GM, Ford, and Daimler Chrysler sitting here. And they are asking you your advice about what their competitive strategy should be over the next three to five years. What would you tell them? Well, I, I would probably start by saying I, I don't envy them their jobs. Uh, <laughs> being the, the head of, of a global automaker these days is, uh, I think, one of the most complicated jobs out there. Um, there's so many expectations on so many fronts uh, from such a wide range of, of constituents. Um, I think there, there's a couple of things that, that would not strike them as, as novel, but is probably always always worth saying. Uh, all of those companies have had moments of seeming to forget some of the, the basics. Um, all of them have had periods of quality going, uh, going downhill, at least for certain models. And, you know, I've come to think that quality is an issue where if you're not focusing on it uh, and moving forward on it, you're likely actually to be slipping and going backwards. And consumers today simply won't tolerate that. There's too much information out there. People's expectations are, are too high. So there's a lot of blocking and tackling basics in this industry that you really have to, you have to maintain excellence in it or, or you start to be at a disadvantage. Um, they would know that, but it's much easier to say than it is to do. Um, I also think some of these recent developments show the wisdom of... Uh, of product uh, diversification strategy, not putting all your eggs in one basket. Uh, I think all of the American companies uh, fell victim to the, the lure, the siren call of these very profitable big SUVs and trucks. And I'm sure there was somebody saying, uh, you know, someday gas prices are going to go up or tastes are going to change. Maybe we ought to be make sure we've got a good, strong passenger car lineup. Um, I think those calls were, were largely ignored because the profits were too tempting. And really, the U.S. had a bit of a protected niche for a while. It's logical to take advantage of that as long as you can, but you ought to be planning for the day when that advantage disappears. Um, you know, I think being an, a global automaker is, is a very complicated issue. There, there are some challenges in having strong global supply chains, um, for example, and figuring out you know, how much do you do in China? How much do you do in Eastern Europe, other low labor cost places? How much do you try to keep your business with uh, technologically innovative suppliers who are located close to you so you can have a lot of interaction? Uh, I think working on the relationship, the automakers, with, uh, with the first-tier suppliers who are increasingly large and technologically sophisticated 
working with them to really involve them in the innovation and product development process. Uh, it's a big change for the industry. Neither party is maybe quite ready for it, but that's worth, I think, a lot of attention. And there are habits from the past which tend to uh, focus that relationship on price negotiations and a lot of adversarialism, a lot of you know, fist banging on the table in, 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 in cost negotiations. And I think it's, it's time for the industry to find a way to move past that. Um, the last thing I'll say, I think, has to do with, uh, with, with talent and, and human resources. Um, you know, to be a truly global company, I think, means finding and developing and utilizing uh, talent, executive talent, engineering talent, uh, wherever you can find it in the world and wherever you need it. Um, this is a challenge for every company. I, I worry for Ford and GM that their recent troubles have caused them to lose talent. People have wanted to, to move to other companies. Hyundai has been very aggressive at hiring uh, talented engineers away from American companies. Toyota, Nissan, Honda have also done it. Um, Toyota is working very hard to uh, globalize their management structure. And um, you know, they've been accustomed to having a strong enough cadre of managers and engineers from Japan that they can sort of send them around the world to oversee uh, both manufacturing and sales operations. Um, they don't have the, the resource to do that anymore, and it just means, particularly given their very rapid rate of growth, um, they're going to have to internationalize, globalize their management much more quickly. And that's a worrisome process. They have a lot of strengths in their system, in their culture, that they don't want to lose by too rapidly uh, internationalizing their management. So it's a, it's a balancing act. But I think all the auto companies have to think hard about those issues of talent and uh, and human resource development. Well, thanks very much for speaking with us. You're welcome. My pleasure. Yeah.